Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Our Strange Guys podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and joining me again, Professor Wham. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for asking me back. Uh, we had a, When we originally decided to do an episode, uh, you know, a while back, I had mentioned uh, Harrison Bailey because... Uh, you had uh, included his case in your dissertation that you wrote, and uh, his story is not, I would say it's not as widely known within UFO circles. He's one of kind of the earliest abductees, so uh, it, it made sense to to have you on for this, uh, for, for this particular episode, because like, it's uh you know Harrison Bailey he's a he's a black man for first and foremost there are racial overtones in this uh in his experiences and uh it's it, it's just such a strange and interesting case you know it is it's uh i mean that's part of the reason why uh, you know many many years ago when i it it, it, it is many years ago now uh, that i uh wrote my when i wrote my dissertation his uh, his case just really stuck out at me. Um, and so I had to include it uh, as, as part of my, you know, overall thesis that, that the standing, at least in the dissertation, that the standing, um, common UFO, uh, alien abduction narrative in the United States. And I was specifying in the United States, uh, is in many ways, heavily influenced and mediated by our racist narratives and expectations about uh, in our culture about who is worthy of contact, who's worthy of sampling. Um, and I mean, I go deeply into it in the dissertation, but um, a big chunk of the dissertation, two whole chapters of it actually deal with uh, the the relative scarcity, although the presence of African-American alien abduction narratives but, and how they're different, but then showing how in some ways they share some of the same features as Barney Hill's account. If you take Barney Hill's account separately from Betty's, they're, you know, in the common everyday account of Betty and Barney Hill, uh, Betty's account and Barney's account are sort of stuffed together. You know, I talk about that, how uh, the, the Hill narrative was sort of uh, created, if you will, uh, by, uh, well, it was created first and foremost by John Fuller, you know, who wrote The Interrupted Journey. Uh, and there are, there are a couple of places in The Interrupted Journey in John Fuller's narrative where he he kind of acknowledges Barney's blackness but hastens to ensure readers that that he's a he in fact at one point he basically says he's a good black man you know he 
you know, and you have to remember this book is being written in 1967, you know, after so much violence, uh, after, you know, uh, the assassination of leaders and all kinds of things. So, um, but that clearly is sort of a subtext running through Barney's account. And if you just take Barney's account separately, in many ways, it's quite different than Betty's account. And uh, um, so playing off of that or, or using that as sort of a template, I looked at a number of African-American um, alien abduction accounts, of which there aren't very many, obviously, at least not that are that are published you know, that are readily available, especially at this time, which it's been over 20 years now since I wrote the dissertation. One would hope there might be more narratives now or more narratives come to light. Um, but um, Harrison Bailey's account stands out because it's it's almost a full decade before the Hill incident. And it has some really interesting features in it, not just race, racial features, but really interesting features about the the kinds of, of beings or entities that he describes and sort of the impact of, at least for him, of that experience, you know, through the course of his life, you know, so, uh, so there are a number of different ways in which this account is interesting. It's not just simply, you know, that it has some racial um, um, content, very clear racial content. And yeah, like Harrison Bailey. Uh, so my, my cutoff generally when talking about early abduction cases is about 1980, uh, because after, and, and even if you, if you want to extend it to about 1987, because after communion and intruders is published, there's like a lot of people that come out with experiences going back into uh, the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and such like that. So uh, in in the written context of the alien abduction kind of lore, Harrison Bailey's story comes to the fore in 1975, uh, after he uh, publishes an ad in, uh, I believe it's the Los Angeles Times, looking for information because um, not only is his experience, not only is he an abductee, but he has suffered uh, negative health effects because of his encounter. So this uh, goes back to 1951. Uh, and, and Harrison... He he worked in the steel mills in Indiana and in Gary, Indiana. And uh, one one hobby that he had is that he liked to roll this giant green tractor tire around and advertise uh, for certain causes. Uh, it, was, it was generally painted. He painted it green and uh, he'd see him on the highways and byways just like rolling this thing. And uh, he would be advertising Things like movie theaters, soft drink companies, uh, there was political causes that he would get behind and, and stuff and stuff. But um, whenever it came to his vacations, sometimes on the weekends, he'd just take this big green tire out and he'd just start rolling it uh, from Indiana often to Illinois. So um right. 
it's it's such a it's such a unique hobby but it's like uh it's it's kind of charming in in a way um i'm in but, western yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean speaking as a midwesterner it's very midwestern you know yes uh so uh september 23rd uh harrison sets out from gary on a three-day trip and he's hoping to arrive in St. Louis by the 26th, where he would be greeted by the manager of his favorite baseball team, the St. Louis Browns. Um, in 1951, they had a really tough season. The Browns went 52 and 102. Uh, so they were good enough to finish eighth place in the American League, which is pretty much dead last. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh no, no hope of playoff contention, but uh, he's of the mind that, you know, this is going to be a morale booster. So the sign on the tire reads, let's come through in 52 St. Louis Browns. Um, so he rents a hotel first, first night. And I can only imagine what it would be like to see a, a man like this uh, check into a hotel with a big green tire. You know, well, well, and and what you have to keep in mind, too, I mean, he doesn't they don't talk about this in his account, um, but it was not uncommon. Um, You've probably heard of the um, I can't even remember what it was called. It was called the Green Book or something like that. Mm. It it was it was a book that was published in the African-American community to let them know what hotels, what places across the country they could stay that were was safe for them. So yeah. um, I would imagine that he probably had done that kind of research mm-hmm. setting out, you know, this is probably something he'd done before. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so You know, regardless, he set out early on the morning of the 24th. He's wearing green overalls, green shoes, green socks, these heavy gloves and goggles. And to complete the ensemble, he has this green backpack over his shoulders. And, uh, you know, after hearing this description, I I can only help but think of, um, you know, Luigi from the Super Mario Brothers. But that's just me. (laughs) I know. I mean, he's a he, he's he's a unique guy. Yeah, <laughs> he truly is. Uh, yeah. So he finds this rhythm quickly. He's pushing this tire ahead of him with relative ease, and he's several miles uh, outside of Orland Park. Uh, and things uh, things are going to get a little weird. So near a, a small forest, Harrison suddenly felt a strange kind of burning sensation at the back of his neck. And turning around, he observed this gray whirlwind in the sky is how he describes it. And, you know, this is something that he had never seen before. And uh, it sounds terrifying as hell to see, but um, he just kind of calmly continues on. And um, in many ways, he's a very calm person when it comes to the stuff that he encounters for the most part he's just like i've seen a lot of weird stuff i'm just gonna keep it moving i'm not i'm not gonna acknowledge it just just push on forward uh and he wanted to make a joliet by sunset and he had about 25 miles to go he generally averaged about four miles an hour so he, he had a pretty good pace 
Uh, and like a kind of a cut scene in a movie, the next thing uh, that Harrison Bailey kind of remembered, the, he, there's like these trees around and there's this kind of large silvery gray object. There's like uh, some cuts and in, in, in stuff when he's recalling a lot of this stuff. But um, he essentially he comes to this area near this um, forest and he sees what uh, he he describes as this log and there's this weird looking being lying directly on this log. And I think the best way to describe it is it looks like an anthropomorphic frog that was about mm-hmm. maybe two feet tall, something like that. And it's just laying flat on this log. And at one point this being gets up and it just starts moving towards him and it's followed by uh other beings kind of like it uh there's like uh i think like a couple dozen or so or maybe about a dozen and they also have these strange kind of like beetles with them too that are following them they're like very small kind of shells and uh he um you know, he's he's immediately kind of like taken aback. And these beings are kind of just like jumping up and trying to touch him. Um, but like it, it, it's it stands out for the time because like we're we're two years now. We're like four years away from kind of your Loveland Frogman, even though right, like right. the Loveland Frogman doesn't really look like a frog. It looks like a tiny short humanoid with like a distended belly um but uh it's just uh you know it's very weird to look at doesn't yeah see like a, a large gray silvery gray object there yeah and 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 a being that had like a like a like a a green tinted visor on sort of yep. like a welder's visor or something like that yep yeah so uh eventually he he just kind of runs for it and he runs into the woods and there's a certain passage of time here in which uh it, it like later on um the way that he divides it up from the time that he encounters this frog-like being um to the time that he finds the ship it's about like two hours mm-hmm. of kind of missing time so runs through the forest and he gets to this silvery object and uh from underneath it comes these two figures humanoid they have these green visors on so you can't really see their faces but it kind of just like ends there for him like he has these kind of memories but he doesn't recall um at this point at this juncture going on board these the the ship or anything like that right and he's just confused because like uh there's a passage of time uh it was uh, a sunny day but now it's a uh, it's a lot darker out and he's not really feeling that great he's uh feeling a little fatigued uh, really intense fatigue. He's got some like cramping in his upper body. 
and uh, he realizes that he has a long way to go. So he um, he rolls his tire, and eventually he comes to the town of Mokina uh, later that evening. And there were no hotels there uh, to stay at, so uh, the station master of the nearby depot allowed him to stay there for the night. So he catches a few hours of sleep, but uh, during the night, he hears voices outside asking um, if anybody had seen like a flying saucer or something like that. You know, just people talking about it. Right. And, you know, uh, Harrison kind of just doesn't take it seriously or anything like that. So he just kind of finally falls asleep, you know, um, and uh it takes some he doesn't have a great night's sleep, but he gets up the next morning, thanks the station master, and he continues on. Uh, but before long, he became aware that there were a lot of people just kind of staring at him as he's like walking along. And wasn't really alarmed by this because you know you're you're a dude rolling a big green tire, so people are gonna stare at you, but uh, these aren't the kind of looks that you want to get from these kind of folks like uh it, it's unsettling but um he could see people just kind of muttering to themselves and talking to themselves and um at a certain point in the road there is a line of people just kind of blocking him and it's a bunch and it, it's you know, you're all picturing it right now. It's a line of white people confronting a black man because that's that's what this is. And in 1951, so. In a rural area. In a rural area in Indiana. And one of these figures calls out to him and says, hey, you, did we see you come out of a flying saucer yesterday? You know, just... Um, a banger question, you know, just like, uh, it's such a, it's such a strange and startling thing. Like trying to imagine myself in that kind of situation and knowing that I'd just laugh my ass off if I was, I was asked that, but like, he basically says, no, sir, I'm not from any flying saucer. That's honest answer to that question. And uh, he quickly pulls out some like identification and he shows him these newspaper articles about him traveling with this tire. And then and then another man demands his shoes. Like this is it's a TSA line here or something. Um, but um, he removes his socks and shoes and it just kind of like everybody breathes this collective sigh of relief. And one man calls out, and this is a direct quote from the article that Ann Druffel wrote about this. Uh, she wrote extensively about this case. She investigated it uh, for a number of years. And the quote is, hey, this fella ain't out of a flying saucer. He's black. And I just like. Uh, yeah, so again. The, the racial overtones are here. They're all over this case. In 
all the accounts that I've ever read. And I mean, you, you've, you've obviously done more research into this. Like I, I, you're, you're, and I mean, you've written about accounts that I've never even heard of before. So, mm-hmm. um, like th- this is not something that is common in. Well, not for someone, not, not for, I mean, not for someone to say it that blatantly, mm-hmm. but, but certainly, um, certainly there are, you know, if you look deeply into certain, um, let me just give you an example. I mean, this, what, what kind of started me on this kind of this trek that I went on to write my dissertation in the early 1990s, uh, I was going from UFO abduction conference to UFO abduction conference. I went to a whole bunch of them in, you know, I don't know, in a period of about four years. And one of the ones I was allowed into, you had to, if you were a scholar, you had to go through sort of a vetting process to do this, was Leo Sprinkle's conference that he had up in Laramie, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And um, if you made it through the vetting process, which I did, if you made it through the vetting process, then you were permitted to sit in on um, kind of, so I guess you would call them sort of group therapy uh, uh, settings or assemblies that he would have where people would get together and they would they would talk about their um, abduction and contact experiences. Um, and, the, and the reason you had to be vetted is that he wanted to make sure that, you know, your academic credentials were real and that you weren't a journalist, you know, that you weren't going to like leak this all over the world, that, that there was some confidentiality there. But anyway, um, I went to any number of the meetings in the, in the one conference of his that I went to. Um, and I was, I, I mean, the, my most memorable experience that got me started on this whole issue was I was sitting in a, in a meeting. I talk about this in my dissertation. I was sitting in a meeting. There were maybe about oh, 60 people total in this meeting, but there were, there were a lot of people that were sort of, there, there were more people in the, than in there than were chairs. So um, there were the, the people in the circle were about 30 people. And then there were others that were around milling around and listening. And everybody was listening with rapt attention at one point to this guy from the UK, this young man from the UK who was talking about his uh, alien encounter. He hadn't actually been uh, abducted as such, but he had had a contact with some type of entity. And, and for some reason, you know, Americans listen raptly to people who have British accents, which I think is hilarious, uh, you know, like mm. <laughs> they say is more true or something because they <laughs> But anyway, um, so they were listening with rapt attention to him. And at some point, somebody in that group said, because, you know, this is kind of uh, beginning in the 1980s, this sort of became an obsession with people in the contact abduction community. They were like, well, what did they look like? You know, what did they look like? And he gestured, this guy gestured to people, everybody around him. And he said, well, you know, they looked kind of like you and me. And, and, and he, he, you know, they were, and he was indicating skin color because mm-hmm. he was white. Every, and then at that moment, 
I recognize, I, I, I kind of, I don't know, I, something clicked in me. And I looked at all of the people who were in the circle and they were all white. But then I looked at people in the larger room and there was a group of, of black people, black folks that were standing off to the side that were in the conference. But they were standing off to the side. They weren't in the circle. And they heard what that guy said and how he gestured. You know, yeah, they look like you and me. And I just saw this look pass between them. And I, and it was like, I witnessed something right there. You know what I mean? It was like, mm-hmm. he wasn't there, there. He wasn't saying something blatantly racist, but the implication in the group was, was very clear that, that um, there was this commonality between the entities that he saw that this UK guy saw. And, and as soon as he said that there was kind of like this sigh of recognition, you know, that everybody was like, Oh, okay. So they look sort of like us. And I just, I just, and there were a couple of other things that happened during that, um, during that uh, conference that really made me wonder about things. There was, there was a, a, at the very end of the conference, there was this uh, large assembly where everybody who had been involved with the conference could come. um, And it, it went on for hours. And anybody who wanted to tell their story of abduction or contact could come up and do it. Uh, if they hadn't had an opportunity to tell it in one of these smaller groups, it, it was just that it was a more public thing. And this woman stood up. I mean, a lot of people were saying all kinds of stuff, but a woman stood up and she started telling us about her experience of abduction, how uh, she and her sister had been uh, in their in in their home and and they had been awakened by these strange beings dressed in in dark clothing who had taken her and her sister and had medically examined them and did a lot of violent things to them. And I mean, and, and the way she told the story was very, very intense. And then she said, and I was marked by them too. They marked me and she pulled up her, her arm and she showed she, she was a concentration camp survivor. Mm. And her point in telling this story was she, she then kind of issued a challenge to the audience. Um, she said, it's not that I'm doubting that some of these things have happened to you, but what I want to know is why it is you are glorifying an experience of abduction and torture. Mm-hmm. When these things happen for real in the world. And there was like this silence in the whole place. And these two ladies in the back behind me, sitting right behind me, one of them turned the other and I could hear her. And she was like, oh, that poor dear. She's just mad about, you know, whatever. And I just thought to myself, you know, there's something to this. Mm -hmm. Because everybody who had gotten up and spoken was a white person. Not only was that, were they white, but they were of a certain socioeconomic background. It was very clear because of how they were talking, how the, the things in their lives they were referencing, 
Um, they were all, all the ones that got up and talked were, you know, maybe middle class, upper middle class. There were no working class people because no, no working class people would have been able to afford to come to this. Okay. So it was, it was very clearly a kind of certain slice of the American population that were making various types of claims about themselves and and this experience that they had. Now, this is not to say that none of them had experiences. I'm not saying that at all. I'm mm. just saying that it was not a representative sample. And uh, especially since, of course, the claim that people like Bud Hopkins liked to, liked to make, um, you know, and his and his little cronies like to make is that this is a universal experience that this that this um, abduction experience is something that cuts across all kinds of people and places and everything and so that was what i set out to investigate and what i found was that there are african-american contact and abduction accounts uh and if you want to put them put them in a different context entity accounts uh, rather than say like extraterrestrial accounts, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the people to report on some of these accounts was W.E.B. Du Bois. Hmm. Interesting. Um, he he wrote a couple of short essays very early on in his life where he talks about, and actually wrote a book, a, a, a short story called The Comet, in which he talks about some of these issues, um, uh, the issue of contact. You know, what does contact mean? Um, contact with what? With whom? Uh, what does what does being alienated mean? What is, you know what I mean? All those kinds of mm -hmm. topics. And so um, when I started doing this research in, in the African-American community, what I found, and this is what I talk about in the dissertation, and I'm sure it's still true. I, I mean, I haven't been able to go out and do any more with this, obviously, since, um, although I think people are a little bit more open now than they used to be. But um, what I found was that there is, in fact, and has been for a long time, probably since the 30s or 40s, an ongoing subterranean community of African-Americans, people of color, who have reported various of these encounters uh, they don't refer to them all as extraterrestrial, particularly, um, but they've had various types of encounters, uh, and they just sort of know about each other. And and it's sort of this substream that runs parallel with and underneath or behind or, you know, or parallel, we'll just put it that way, with the sort of um, mass abduction narrative that's become popular in the United States. Mm. Um and and what I also found, uh, you know, as I was finishing my dissertation, I also found, of course, that and, and uh, other people have written about some of this, that there that there are ongoing uh, there are ongoing accounts like this in in the indigenous communities in the United States. Uh, already said, Six Killer Clark has written a bunch of books about. Yep. And I actually, because of where I sit, I've been able to, to talk to indigenous people here in the Hudson Valley who've had specific types of accounts. And there are also um, other types of contact abduction accounts that occur in various 
of the Hispanic or Mexican communities that are often quite distinct and different than some of the accounts that you'll get sort of in the mainstream in, that are sort of regarded as, you know, more, I guess, normal, <laughs> typical abduction yeah. accounts. Um, and when I was writing my dissertation, I mean, I have no idea about what his database became later, but um, it had had, by the time I wrote it, it had, this issue had become a, an issue that even Bud Hopkins was questioned about at one time. And he looked at his database and he realized when he looked at his database that he had like, I don't know, he had like 600 or something um, people that he had interviewed. And out of those 600 people, like four of them were black. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe a few others, like a handful of were other, you know, were not white, were people of color. And so it's like, yeah, you don't have to, you know, the Harrison Bailey case states it up front, you know, oh, he can't come from a flying saucer. He's a black mm -hmm. man. But the implication of that statement runs throughout the abduction contact mainstream narrative. So. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's yeah. about who is worthy of contact. Right. Right. And, um, you know, from top to bottom, Harrison Bailey is treated as uh, the other, as the, um, he, he's kind of an alien regardless of whether he says it or not. Um, you know, when, when you look at uh, the way that he was received like this and yeah it's 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 just there and um he uh he gets his credentials back from these people and he kind of just rolls on just shrugs mm -hmm. it off and it didn't dissuade him at all though which is you know which is good you know he he kind of continued doing this for years and until he couldn't anymore uh at a certain point, he added lights to his tire and he was mistaken for a UFO a couple of times. So, um, you know, you have that. Uh, but uh, after this, um, after his encounter, he started to experience a lot of health problems. Um, mm -hmm. Mostly it, it, it was uh, stomach pains and he went to doctor after doctor and they could not diagnose him um as as like uh, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him so um well in fact if I, if i if i remember they they claimed that he didn't have anything wrong with him right right you know? and and of course you know that that's a whole question because we know we know studies have shown that people of color are routinely, their pain is routinely dismissed mm -hmm. by, do by doctors. Um, and even more so probably in the fifties and sixties and seventies, you know, which is when he was reporting his ailments and, and um, he could have been suffering from, you know, various types of emotional and mental stresses connected to this, that you can't find an organic cause, but that doesn't mean that there isn't pain there. You know, that there is a, yeah. a discomfort there in some ways. Right. Like 
if you you know if you're suffering from like even even people who suffer from anxiety they have physical ailments Absolutely. they Absolutely. have they suffer from like things like nausea they suffer from like chest pain and stuff like that i know because i have it and and it, <laughs> it it's not fun but like uh yeah like uh, that also kind of uh you know goes to the point of how like you know mental health uh care and i mean even now it's not as good as it could be but back then it definitely wasn't uh you know great so you know well, well and if he had ptsd mm -hmm. you know then it's i mean it's very clear when when barney hill is hypnotized yes it's very clear and dr simon is clear about it that something something happened to Barney and that, yeah. and actually um, Dr. Simon in his original transcripts for all this, which I do talk about my dissertation does refer to Barney's earlier experiences as a black man with his first wife being terrorized by mm -hmm. from time to time and how that you, you could not write off that, those experiences combined with whatever occurred with him and Betty um, to produce his, his ailments because it was mm -hmm. his physical ailments, his sense of anxiety. That's why they went to the psychiatrist anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and, and uh, one thing that I failed to note uh, in an earlier episode when we um, kind of started this series um I, I don't think people really know Dr. Benjamin Simon's credentials and how, um, you know, he treated a lot of soldiers coming back from the mm -hmm. war front in World War II with PTSD, he used hypnosis to do it. So, you know, he was renowned for doing it. Um, he made it part of his regular practice. It was something that... Um, I guess if you want to say like he was responsible with, uh, I mean, he's a physician, so like, uh, you know, he has his, uh, you know, patient's best interests at heart, but like he was responsible with the hypnosis that he did, um, as opposed to a lot of people who coming into the UFO field who just decide to, um, learn hypnosis and then just go nuts. And then, um, you get a lot of, kind of troubling confabulation. Confabulation. Yeah. Yeah. um david jacobs for instance yes um but uh yeah and don't get started on him <laughs> i know i know that's that's an episode that's coming down the line uh we'll, we'll definitely get there but uh um yeah harrison bailey he went into the army for a couple of years 52 to 54 um he returned to Gary, Indiana after that, uh, continued his uh, work in the steel mills, He's still rolling that tire. Um, and every time, you know, he goes to the doctors, they're just like, yeah, you got a nervous stomach. It's nothing. So um, as the years roll on, these health problems just start taking, you know, their toll. Um to the point where he's not able to roll that tire as much. And in 1963, he has surgery to remove his gallbladder, which is successful. But after the surgery, the doctor pulled him aside and asked him what was wrong with him. 
which um you know uh I, it's just like uh you know weird in the way that it's it's presented but i can totally see it being presented in that way but you know basically the doctor's like you know we're going through your records you've you've been somewhere or something has gone through your body and you're not telling us about it what is it and you, yeah, yeah dude's obviously lying well okay um the doctors don't even tell him what they found they pull his wife aside and 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 basically say uh and this is an odd statement and like i i they basically say that uh his organs were three times older than they should be for his age which it's a very strange way to put it uh i but like you know i'm not a physician i don't know but it's just like that entire thing is weird so like you know he's he's either got some bad organs going on here or uh you know whatever uh harrison bailey wasn't a drinker he didn't do drugs just kind of like there's no like common uh explanation for what he's experienced all he has is this ufo experience and he starts to formulate in in his mind that he is suffering from a quote-unquote flying saucer disease right um so Bailey, he, he retires from the steel mill in, in 1966 on a disability pension. And, you know, this is a high point for UFOs. UFOs, like uh, 65 is kind of this year, like in um, August of 65 is kind of when um, this huge kind of flat period from 65 to 67 takes place ufos are in the news um you know there's a lot of major cases going on in 66 like dexter hillsdale um mm -hmm. the portage county chase uh just like a lot of stuff which we've covered on the podcast before but like uh you know we're just in the middle of this flap so he took to the newspapers with his encounter and he's basically looking to see if anybody had had any similar experiences. Um, and uh, nobody ever responded, though. Nobody ever, you know, came forward to, to say anything. And, like, it's not out of the ordinary, because if you look at uh, kind of uh, abductions, even back then, there there weren't a lot of people coming forward with them. You would, um, uh, between... You know, V.S. Boas, whose story kind of came to be known in 65, um, Betty and Barney Hill, Herbert Shermer. Mm -hmm. That's kind of it. There, there, there really aren't. Uh, I know the Condon Committee received a couple of letters from people claiming to have had abduction experiences. Uh, there was also, um, you know, after the interrupted journey came out, there were a couple of like cash grab books that people wrote, uh, which were not true. Kind of like the, uh, the terror above us, uh, you know, about the, the, the Steiner brothers and their, um, right. ex experience, but like, you know, yeah, it's not, not until the seventies you get like yeah. Pascagoula case and then you yeah. get, then you get like the Andreas and Betty Andreas and case and, but you don't yep. hear about those until later. So. Yeah. 
exactly uh and like you know we we know that the earliest kind of written account of of an abduction is 1957 in the in the pages of the uh prince george citizen a british columbia newspaper but even then you know that the people of prince george yeah they probably read it but not a lot of people did outside of that at least until later on so he's kind of out of luck for a number of years. He, you know, occasionally puts things in newspapers here and there, but uh, after he retires, he goes on to become a reverend at the new Salem Baptist mission church uh, in Pasadena, California. And on April 24th, 1975, he placed an ad in the Los Angeles times searching for people suffering from similar afflictions and with the ad reaching a larger audience, he appeared on a television talk show called the Mickey and Teddy show. And through his experiences, he ends up connecting with Ann Druffel, who uh, by that time she'd been investigating since the sixties. She'd been a member of NICAP, uh, became a member of MUFON, uh, just like really prominent, uh, became a, a, a figure like heavy into kind of abductions that was kind of her big thing and um went on to write you know kind of one of the most infamous uh books on abductions in the 90s called how to defend yourself against alien abduction um (laughs) which is you know a classic it's a classic and it, it it comes from uh her work on the tahunga canyon case of uh the 70s uh the story of uh, a group of women who had abduction experiences uh through having a relationship with a uh, uh, one woman in particular i can't remember her name at the moment but uh, we we covered it a while ago it's a fascinating case if uh if y'all haven't uh, picked up the book on it it's it's really great but uh um after Anne got involved in the case, uh, her first avenue to explore the experience is hypnosis. And, you know, regardless of what your opinions are of hypnosis, there are therapeutic, there is therapeutic value in it. I know there is, but like I, I know the, the questionable uh, measure of uh, truth under hypnosis is, you know, it's, it's spotty. It's, it's not really a great, memory retrieval tool but um it has been used in the ufo community for decades as a memory retrieval tool or at least the you know that's what a lot of people claim but uh june 6 1977 uh under dr bill mccall a family physician uh who had uh he had done uh i think the only other prominent abduction case that i know that he worked on was the abduction of brian scott who um at the time in the 70s when his story was first becoming known he was kind of one of the earliest uh multiple um ab- abduction experiencers mm-hmm. um because at the at uh what you note uh in abduction accounts from the 60s to through most of the 70s is that uh they're treated as singular events they're not treated as repeated events that doesn't really come until the 80s when you know bud hopkins really starts to um get involved in abductions and and such but um 
uh, uh, regarding Bertold Schwartz and yes. Work. Yeah. He does. He does indicate, even though he's kind of it's kind of retrospective. He does indicate that that uh, uh, that a, a lot of these these experiences happen on a continuum and happen continue, happen over time and happen in families and clusters. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hmm. Like the way that this kind of this particular aspect of the ufo uh phenomenon kind of evolves over time it has a very strange evolution because eventually what you what you notice is that it kind of just gets co-opted by bud hopkins and like his kind of sect of things like the image that we have today of what alien abductions are largely framed by bud hopkins um so uh, you know, it's important to keep in mind that when you read abduction cases from before Bud Hopkins get involved, they're very different. They're, um, yeah, they they are singular events generally, and the abductors are not all, they don't all look the same. They don't all look like greys. They all kind of vary in, in um, shape and size and, and, and such, but um McCall, he takes Bailey back to that day in 1951 on Highway 6 between Cicero and Joliet, Illinois. And as he draws closer to the woods, Bailey shouts right up there, they're waiting for me. And as he approached, he saw, you know, this strange figure just lying flat on the log. And, you know, while others are kind of just like half hidden by this foliage, just kind of looking out at him. And it's like, and and these are very animalistic. This is these are very animalistic kind of um, creatures here. Um, he described them as quote a a lot of little bugs. They're bigger than a bug, about the size of a big frog, and they're on a log that's partly out in the road. They're coming close to me. Uh, a lot of them on both sides, close enough to touch me. Uh, unlike a frog, these beings walked on two legs. Uh, they stood approximately 18 inches tall. And without warning, this just creature gets up from this log and just starts to walk towards him. And the smaller creatures kind of gather around him. Um, and they're kind of calling out to each other. They're making these odd sounds that he compares to like ducks quacking. Uh, which, uh, if I saw a giant frog that made duck sounds, I would be startled. That's, um, no, thank you. Gonna pass on that. But, uh, a, a dozen of these creatures are just kind of jumping up and touching him on the hips and waist. And, you know, like it's like they're children uh, in a way, uh, like gathering around someone, just, um, mm -hmm. trying to reach up to touch something. Um, uh, their skin was smooth. It was brown in color, uh, had stripes. Uh, their mouths were kind of like uh, were slit like on their head, which was kind of largely featureless. And they were accompanied by these small bugs that uh, he basically said look like black shells. They look like big kind of black beetles in a way. Um, quote, I don't know. 
how come so many of them? I've been touched maybe a bit. I start to run. Woods still dark. It was early morning when I went in. Should be out of the woods by now. It seems to be getting pretty late. I don't understand. I'm beginning to feel confused. I must lay down. I know I wouldn't lay down. It's a wooded area, no houses. So like from his, this is from his hypnosis session. It's like, he's he's completely confused because things are just happening kind of so fast to him. These mm-hmm. changes in time. Um, uh, but uh, he he kind of experiences this heaviness that overcomes him a little bit. And things start to become a little hazy and um, all the wire he all the while he's keeping this tire just rolling like he does not abandon this tire at all. He's he's keeping it with him. And um, after a while, he comes to a period of time that he just kind of can't account for. And he eventually comes upon this large object sitting near a pond just off the road to his right. And it's roughly the size of a Greyhound bus. And it was rounded and silver gray in color, kind of your typical saucer. And Bailey stops for a few moments to watch this object for a little bit. And then this aperture opens up at the bottom and two beings wearing helmets emerged and and stood staring at him. And I I think what's interesting here is like you have this triggering event um, you know, which in a lot of abduction cases, what you read is like there's a triggering event, whether it's a light or a sound or um, a sensation overcoming you um, in this in this case, um, the, the triggering event is a weird looking frog like creature on a log, which is which is pretty unique and um and even here, it, it's it's pretty unique. So Harrison kind of becomes reserved uh, in the hypnosis sessions about um, the experiences that are about to uh, happen. Uh, he tells McCall that uh, if he'd gone on board, he'd never tell anyone about it. And, um, you know, it, later he just kind of opens up, they ease him into it. And then he basically said that they put him to sleep to bring him on board and that uh, the touch of the beings is what caused that to happen. And as the session continued, he found himself inside the craft, his body's laid out on a low slung bed, uh, which he described as being kind of soft. And there was a light shining down on his face. Uh, you could see strange machines and two humanoids approaching him. And, and I think what's interesting here is like uh, the humanoid uh, creatures that he encountered before this don't resemble the the beings that are working on him the 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 beings that are working on him uh look more human like uh in a way he doesn't get a full view of their face but they're kind of struck uh the their frame is uh very human but they stood roughly uh five feet tall and he called them quote unquote benevolent enough um which, you know, uh, during an experience like that? Yeah, I guess. But, uh, quote, behind the tinted shields, their features were flattened and bizarre. Their clothing was made of a single piece of fabric without openings or zippers. Uh, in his fright, Bailey didn't get around to noticing their hands or feet. So 
uh, he, he didn't get a lot of description, but like these, uh, these beings are a bit different. He closed his eyes, uh, and tried, just tried to block everything out. Uh, and he started to feel his head kind of being moved from side to side, but he said nobody really touched him. Uh, so, uh, something was moving his head. Uh, and next, he remembered receiving a message through telepathy from the two beings, urging him to tell the people of Earth that UFOs were real and that they meant no harm, but desired open communication with human beings. And let me tell you, folks, these aliens are going to get persistent about this message. It's going to come up over and over again. Uh, this poor guy going through all this is basically like, hey, we need a spokesperson and you're our guy. So, yeah. It, <laughs> and he's, he's not too happy about that, I know. No, no. He, he uh, Bailey's basically asked him why, uh, why not to talk to like scientists or someone with more, you know, knowledge about things. And uh, their response was pretty curious, though. Uh, quote, they say they're in the same shape I am. Somebody always looking at them, like people looking at me when I roll the tire. Now it appears that they want people to stop staring at them and to be more friendly. I think they're good people with a problem. Hey, good people with a problem. <laughs> oh, goodness. That's funny. Yes. Um <laughs> Uh, I let them talk. They would like me to be a spokes spokesman for them. They're in the same fix I am. I think they refer to my being black to being not wanted in this society. Uh, yeah. So even the aliens are kind of bringing it on heavy. The aliens. Uh, and like, again, this is like a, even if this is like one man's subconscious, like, with these experiences it's very rooted in the problems of the world yeah. he's living in you know all right well and that that i think is one of the components of the that's one of the components of the abduction contact experience that a lot of people you know like david jacobs and bud hopkins people who really really want a certain kind of narrative attached to these accounts that they just, they don't consider. Mm -hmm. um, and for some reason, when I reread Harrison Bailey's account, um, when, cause you gave, you know, you gave me the summary of it for me to, to remind myself of it because I haven't actually you know, I know the outline of it, but I haven't actually looked at his account for a really long time. And and I really enjoyed looking at those uh, publications that you sent me mm -hmm. because I hadn't seen a couple of those ever. So it was it was really nice to see those. But um, for some reason, when I reread his um, his account, there were aspects of it that really reminded me of of uh sam the sandown clown yeah uh, familiar with that account yep uh, the paranormal scholar just did a thing on it and there, there are certain elements of that account that are similar um 
in the sense that you have these strange beings that appear to to change appearance or a variety of beings and and the and the and the message that they're the messages that they're giving to the individual that they're contacting is not what you would expect you know it's not uh i mean what they're asking bailey to do is just simply tell people that they exist mm. you know and that they would like some contact they're not giving him like these huge you know things about the universe you know like billy myers is getting from simjazi or you know george adamski is getting from his venusian contacts you know the, the, he's not getting you know super metaphysics or anything they're just basically saying to him tell people that we exist mm-hmm. tell people that we're here and the sense that he has that that they feel alienated you know like he feels alienated that there's no place for them in this world like there's no place for him in this world mm-hmm. and that to me is really interesting yeah. uh, because uh in the sandown one of the things that sam the sandown clown said to to the children that he was contacting or this entity was contacting is he kind of said something like i mean i'm summarizing here but he kind of said something like yeah i'm i'm kind of like your ancestors i'm kind of like that um but but not not entirely you know i mean it was it was but there was the sense in which part of what was being conveyed there was an understanding that whatever that is, whoever that was, is something that's been forgotten, mm-hmm. something that's been overlooked. And I think that that um, that that's that's often a feature. I mean, Harrison Bailey's account reminds me now a lot of fairy stories. Yeah. I mean, of the Fae, um, and I, especially then the appearances that that happened to him later, which I had completely forgotten about. I mean, I knew about them, but because I wasn't concentrating on them in my dissertation, I didn't write about them so much. But um, I completely forgot about how these somebody was started appearing to him in the late seventies you know, as a result of dreams and other experiences that he was having and he tried to get photos of them. So, uh, but there, but the sense of like, how do we, how do we connect with people uh, mm-hmm. to let us and let them know that we're here too, whoever we are, <laughs> Just yeah. you know, um, it's that, that sense of alienation is, is interesting. Yeah, it, it is, especially coming from the aliens themselves. Uh, it's uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting aspect to all of this. So Harrison, uh, he eventually, after conversing with these folks, uh, exits the craft. Is uh, he, he, his tire comes with him and he describes how it kind of feels like um, almost weightless. Uh, it was uh, coming down the ramp a little easier and all memory of 
what had happened inside slipped away, including the message that they had imparted to him, which, um, you know, if you're imparting a message to someone, you might want them to remember it. But, you know, uh, that's that's kind of the nature of, uh, you know, most UFO accounts before um, once you cross the threshold, um, everything's forgotten. So mm-hmm. um, and what's interesting here is that Harrison experiences these two separate lapses in time, like uh, of two to three hours. And, you know, the first occurred um, during the encounter with the frog like entities um, uh, from that moment to the time that he spots the ship in um in the woods it's kind of two to three hours and after he exits the ship it's another two to three hours um and uh druffle also makes note that uh there's a third moment of missing time believed to have occurred uh during uh his stay at the train depot and what they make note of is uh, where his abduction experience occurred and where this train depot is, is like miles away. So perhaps the voices that he was hearing people talking about, you know, in a UFO experience, it had happened very close to that train depot. So, you know, three basic moments of missing time is what we're dealing with. And Following his UFO encounter between the years of 1952 and 1969, Harrison suffered from a series of seizures. And uh, though a series of EEGs failed to find the cause, these seizures led to these kind of very vivid dreams involving the craft and the beings that he saw and interacted with. And often they would remind him of the message that they wanted to impart. So, um, uh, the the story of Harrison Bailey after it's published, it continues on, um, you know, and perhaps it's, uh, you know, the investigation of the case that kind of, you know, makes it happen. But um, there's an incident in his apartment involving disembodied heads against a window shade. Um, and these heads uh, were human sized, dark brown in color and had kind of distorted features. And these beings, uh, you know, were the f- very familiar to him, same beings he interacted with um, and had interacted with since about 1965. Um, but uh, he started to dream about them more in October 1977 after his government disability was cut off. Uh, so like, you know, we have a, like stress in your life kind of being this conduit to, um, more encounters with these beings. Uh, and the most peculiar thing about this, this time is that he started to develop bouts of sleepwalking, you know, Mm -hmm. Harrison would basically be found all over Pasadena, sometimes miles away from home and he'd be returned by the police. And these beings were insistent every time carry out our mission to bring public attention to this BRPR guy. And, um, you know, if, if you're going through financial woes, you don't need this on top of it. 
Like, you know, this is this is a bit much, but uh, and and like how many people are going to listen to you? Honestly, I mean, maybe more like there's a lot of grifters out there. You know, there's there's a ton and and they get enough attention. But like, it's just like I I don't know how many people are going to listen to a man just out there saying, uh, hey, UFOs exist and they, and they want peaceful contact. But um. Harrison would just kind of argue endlessly with these beings, telling them that he wasn't important, that it that it didn't matter. Uh, and throughout all these experiences, Andruffel gave him a little bit of advice and basically said, "Hey, why don't you keep a a, a, a camera with you at all times, and then take pictures of these beings?" And he did, and he took. A series of photos in fact there are two of them that uh um they're freaky as hell uh there's no way no doubt about it um so on november uh on the november night uh november 1st 1978 he awoke suddenly at 1 a.m the disembodied heads appearing against the window shade beyond the foot of his bed and he could just make them out uh, because of the light that was coming from his bathroom. So he lay there for a few minutes trying to decide if this was a side effect of his new medication that he'd been given for sleepwalking or not. And his head kind of hurt to look at them and his eyes burned a little bit. But uh, he eventually went to the bathroom, washed his face. And when he returned, the faces were still there. Uh so they were insistent on his task, giving him specific message he wanted, you know, them to he wanted him to pass along. So he asked them twice uh, if he could photograph them. And when they finally consented, stated that uh, they had to, quote unquote, de-energize. I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure if these aliens come with a dimmer switch, but uh, apparently they do. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh you know he takes one photo and then the beings kind of asked to hide behind something and as if this story couldn't get more frightening he pulled two halloween masks from a nearby shelf and these disembodied heads basically put them on and um th- th- like th- this is like the most unsettling photo Related to a UFO case that I've ever seen. It's pretty weird. It's pretty yeah. weird. It's a pretty strange photo. Yeah, uh, because um, you know, if it weren't for like what looked like dangling legs coming from the bottom, like dangling spectral legs and arms and kind of a torso, you wouldn't, you, you know, it, it wouldn't be anything. But like, it's just so weird to look at. But um, uh, we'll we'll make sure that. Uh, you'll be able to see these photos because they're um, there's something. But uh, to quote Druffle's MUFON article, um, their texture and color were like gray eggs, and they took the form of thin, misshapen legs and feet and a minuscule torso. The heads of the entities now seemed hidden behind the masks. The eye holes were black instead of empty, end quote. Um, So... Yeah, uh, nightmare fuel, just nightmare fuel. And, <laughs> and uh, but like Bailey's just like snapping photos, just uh, one after the other. Um, and then one of the beings kind of jumps from 
the the table into the bathroom through the bathroom door and Bailey runs to the bathroom to snap some more photos before uh you know the being had disappeared but unfortunately it was a little too late uh but these bright globes of light appeared kind of on the ceiling and they're whirling about um and they're kind of these dimmer ones towards uh the floor and he brushes against one of these globes which uh kind of brightened and whirled uh, when he did, and these are there's four globes of yellowish bright light um, that kind of whirled in a circle. And he attempted to photograph them, but they kind of shot through the ceiling before he could. Um, quote, the ceiling at this instant seemed to disappear, and Bailey had a uh, heady feeling that he was looking out into space, end quote. Um, so apparently, you know, they're just opening up uh, portals into space, jumping through the ceiling uh, from the bathroom. He watched the other beings still in the bedroom kind of spring upward toward the ceiling. The swirling lights appeared in the being's place and uh, disappeared as Bailey attempted to photograph them again, um, uh, like he had done in the bathroom. Um, after this, Harrison couldn't really remember returning to bed. The next morning, he wakes up and he finds these pages kind of uh, detailing what had happened. There's 12 Polaroids kind of scattered near the bed. Quote, they were not like any uh, pictured uh, pictures Bailey had ever seen. Some were completely dark. Others had dim images accompanied by panels of brilliant orangish light. Others showed clearer but shadowed spaces or shadowed shapes. The strangest of all were the photos of the Halloween masks with their staring black eyes and gray white limbs. These pictures were in full light. The colors were bright and true. The series of five also showed dim yellow globes of light, which in successive shots made apparent movement from the window shade into the bathroom. Uh, we only got two of these photos uh there are like a dozen and i'm sure some of them probably weren't that great but like i would have liked to seen more than two but you know uh you get what you get in this case and he basically took those photos to put them in a safety deposit box um and he kind of just developed this fear of his apartment at night um you know, which is not uncommon for experiencers. And uh, if this happened to me, yeah, I would be a little scared of my apartment at that point. Um, but uh, there's like a lot of extensive analysis of this, um, of these photos, which I don't really want to get into. I just included it anyways. But um, there were a lot of people that Andruffle went to to have these photos examined um you know a lot of like there were nasa folks from nasa got involved in this and uh the biggest point of contention was whether he used a flash bar or not on his camera which you know everybody seemed to you know think that he did and seemed to agree that he did but like Nobody could totally debunk these photos, which is interesting. Um, all they could say is like, yeah, it, it kind of 
it doesn't jive with his story saying that uh he did because he he claimed that he he couldn't remember using a flash bar to take these photos so um it's uh it's just it's a weird it's a weird thing but like everybody under the sun practically touched these photos j allen hynek looked at them uh and in typical j allen hynek fashion he kind of you know after the swamp gas incident he's kind of taking things down the middle is like, I can't say if it is or it isn't, but you know, they're interesting photos. Um, Dr. Barry Taff and Carrie Gaynor get involved. D Scott Rogo, who um, uh, published this, his uh, Harrison Bailey's account in his, uh, he has a book about UFO abductions that was published in the late seventies, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, that's where I got the account. He, he yeah. publishes a brief, a brief version of it. Yeah. And like, that's kind of the nature of books about abduction up to up to this point is like they're kind of compilations. Uh, the Lorenzen's have, had published one. Uh, Rogo had published one. Uh, and that's that's kind of it other than like you know a few kind of like main accounts uh, of abduction cases but like you know that all kind of changes um in the 1980s but like uh that's that's pretty much it in this case like uh other than like there were some people that you know were obviously skeptical richard hall for instance um he um he felt like uh you know, like that he he had cited uh i, I want to say it was uh, one of the members of the condon committee who had made an offhand comment about herbert Shermer claiming that he had brain damage and that mm-hmm. uh, his account was uh, like correspondent to brain damage basically uh and he made a lot of other statements but like you know that that is that is what it is um i don't want to get too far in the weeds on the 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 skeptic believer side but like it's that that's basically that's that's the story that we have here um today right. but yeah i mean know. i mean i know that there are some people that think that uh that um bailey was i mean hall richard hall is one people person who believes that or has who has opined that he thinks that harrison bailey was an individual who was using this as kind of a way to get attention mm-hmm. the, and to me what the problem with that is, is that what attention he did get from it was largely negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it, it, you know, and and he didn't actually pursue it in depth. I mean, he would occasionally sort of reach out, but he didn't actually start pursuing it in depth until the 1970s, until yeah. other other abduction accounts had started coming out. So. um you know, he he didn't gain anything by this. No. And apparently doesn't talk about it anymore. Right. Uh, uh, so. 
No, because, you know, I can only imagine from such a negative experience, why would you talk about it? Like, why uh, I like from top to bottom and and from the way that, uh, you know, his character was judged. I I don't blame him at all for not talking about it. Um, uh, is, Is he still living today? I don't even know. Well, he I don't it doesn't say whether he died or not, but he was alive as of 2000. 2008. Okay. So, um, and he was in his seventies then. So yep. he, he might have passed by now. At that time, the Chicago Tribune did like a thing on him and, uh, you know, basically told much of the same kind of basic story that you have been telling and, and, and then said that he, he no longer will discuss it at that time, you know, at that time. Yeah. So, whether he's alive or not, I don't know. He may have chosen to just sort of let it all just go. Yeah, which is totally understandable from a an experience that is negative from the experience itself, from the attention that came from it, from all angles. Um, I, I will say that I give Andruffle a lot of credit for going to the lengths that she did to try to you know, authenticate these photos, investigate his case, uh, and like give him, uh, kind of the, the space that, uh, he wanted to, you know, get his story out there to try and find others that suffered from, you know, health effects like he did. And while there are people who have, uh, suffered from their encounters, uh, his, his story is largely unique. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. It, yeah, because there are, you know, other than people who have had close encounters, kind of like, um, you know, the Cash Landrum incident or, um, Rendlesham Forest and, and stuff, like, there, there isn't a lot written about, uh, long term effects, at least, uh, you know, to me, there isn't. There are, at least, there aren't a lot of cases that come to mind when that happens, but, um, this is just a very unique story with unique connotations to it and like a, a really a, a really the, the way that it plays with um race and and such is is like unique from top to bottom it's like one of the most unique abduction stories that you'll ever hear and not enough people know about it. So, yeah, um, yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, it's uh, uh, in the, in my dissertation, I talk about Harrison Bailey's case. I also talk about Martin Riley, Riley's case or Riley Martin, Martin Riley, uh, the coming of tan, the guy who wrote the coming of tan. And the reason that I, and then I also talk about this, Oh, his name. No, not Michael Andrew McCoy. That's his name, Michael Andrew McCoy. And he has both of these other guys have really interesting. They're African-American. They have very, very interesting um, takes on, you know, whatever you think of their experience. I mean, you know, um, Riley got, you know, Howard Stern started having him on his show and in the 2000s and sort of trying to make fun of him, but mm. you know, he actually held his own pretty well. 
And what's interesting about his account, I don't know if you've read The Coming of Tan, but it's still, Mm -hmm. you can get it on Amazon. What's interesting about his story is that uh, it's got a lot of racial stuff in it. Um, And and his, uh, uh, it's not only his initial account, but then his interpretation of it, which is, is kind of unique. Um, and then Michael Andrew McCoy, um, also there's, and in both of these cases, um, there's this understanding that, um, uh, and this is what, this is, this is important actually, although I, I don't know that Bailey, Bailey's case fits right into this, but in the, in the cases that I looked at in my dissertation, one of the things that was interesting to me was that in the in the in the mass abduction narrative or the common abduction narrative uh, in our culture, uh, the the sense of being alienated um, that that um, your standard white abductee will will experience. Okay, I'll just put it that way. Um, yeah. Is is the sense that you've been set apart, that you've been marked in some way that this traumatic thing has happened to you that you're that you were um you're set apart from other people um as a result of this experience whereas um for the the black contactee abductees that i talked to and i talked to a number of them for the for the dissertation um and shared some of their stories the experience that they had confirmed and confirmed that they were still human despite their own sense of alienation from mainstream culture. In other words, there was something about their experience that uh, enabled them to find a kind of, even if their experience was really disturbing, like Michael Andre's experience was very disturbing. He had really terrible dreams and it, it really kind of messed him up for a long time. Um, and uh, one of the uh, other abductees that I spoke to, uh, who at the time when I spoke to her, she was actually a fairly well-known professor at a Midwestern university. Um, she talked about how, Um, terrifying some of the initial experiences were. And yet out of that came a sense that who she was as an, as a black woman, who she was as a, as a black person uh, was, was important, was valued. It was almost like, you know, there, they did not have a sense of alienness from their experience so much as um, they were told that they were correct in that our current racial situation in the United States is messed up. Basically. Yeah, you know, it was yeah. other words, in other words, they were confirmed in their humanness. And 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 Martin Riley is actually really interesting in his account because one because his account contains a lot of sexual content, and so his narrative really confronts 
that whole narrative that we have in our culture about, you know, the over-sexualized black male. And, and I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there that if you like read, read it and, and just think about, you know, stereotypes of black men, I'm thinking of pornography right now, you know, stereotypes of black men and, and, uh, and kind of a fetishization of them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with the the BDSM community, the fetish community, but there's this whole thing about, you know, black men who are well endowed, you know, doing, doing white women while they're white husbands. There's this whole thing, you know, it's like this whole community that does this. And I think to myself, wow, you know, and he, and he just, talks directly to those stereotypes. So, I mean, if you haven't read The Coming of Tan, I'd really recommend it, you know, regardless of what you, what anybody thinks about it, you know, the objective nature of some of these experiences, you know, cause I, I, I can't even get into that. I mean, who the hell knows? I mean, I've had so many weird experiences that, you know, I don't know what it means, but um, the narratives that are coming out of it are really interesting, you know? Yeah. Um, and so Bailey, you know, I think the thing that is sad about him is that people just didn't take him seriously, but his, Mm. his connect, his, his ability to connect that sense of alienation that the aliens felt with his own is really important, you know, because that's, that's not something that you find in the common white narrative. Right. Yes. Uh, and I think one thing that gets left out of uh, the UFO uh, kind of story more often than not is um, cultures outside of, uh, you know, white American culture, their experiences, how those experiences are interpreted because they are not all the same. You, you look at um, folks in Africa who have, experiences they don't relate them necessarily to extraterrestrials but to ancestral spirits so uh like you know you look at like some cultures in south america who um put encounters with aliens as like you know uh like boosting your social standing your social status in in your own culture and and such and like um i think those conversations often get left out even from uh you know other uh you know races within the united states so i think that's uh, that's why this episode is important because uh, you know, that that story getting left, uh, you know, by the wayside, it's important to tell, you know, all aspects, uh, you know, all sides of this, uh, you know, and everybody's account of what happens and, and how they, uh, you know, come to internalize it, externalize it, how they come to deal with things. And uh, w- when you have a more complete picture of a phenomenon, you know, it... it, it it invites more people in to tell their stories, which is important um, because uh, it shouldn't be one sect of people just, uh, you know, dominating this. So like, yeah, this, this episode is important and I can't thank you enough for coming on and and talking about this. Um, I I appreciate it so much, you know? Uh, Well, yeah, it is, it is important because, you know, um, we're 
we're dealing with a set of phenomena that have, as far as we can tell, have been with humans for as long as humans have recorded anything. And um, if we're going to find out the truth about anything, anything like it, you have to have as many data points, as many stories mm-hmm. as possible. And so the the uh, erasure of stories like Harrison Bailey's story, uh, the refusal of people to listen to certain parts of it, that just speaks to the politics in mm-hmm. our pair of weird communities and yeah. that have been there for a long time. And I'm not the only one who's seen it. I mean, even John Keel and Jacques Vallée very early on speak to certain elements of this. So it's, I mean, it's not like it's, it's not like it's not there. It's it's just yeah. a matter of whether people acknowledge it or not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Professor Wham, can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast, yeah. talking Harrison Bailey uh, and all this stuff. It's, it's been great. Where can people keep up with what you got going on? All your all your stuff. Where can they? Well, the best place to keep up to date with me is on my website, professorwham.com. And that's wham, W-H-A-M, <laughs> professorwham.com. Um, in fact, I'll be updating it this weekend. I've got I've got a, one or two new blog posts to put up and I've got a, several other um, interviews I've done lately that need to go up. So um, that's the best place to reach me. And, and if people are interested, um, both the books that are available on that website, Mysterious Beauty, um, Living with the Paranormal in the Hudson Valley, and Final Season, a, Love, a Lovecraftian Quartet, are now available on Audible. And they're really good. <laughs> I have to say, I didn't read them. I didn't read them. <laughs> if I read them, they wouldn't be good. <laughs> they're really good they're really good they are really good and and you should definitely go pick them up and and give them a listen because they they are absolutely fantastic thank you so much sure thing special thanks again to professor wham for coming on uh for this episode uh this is an all-time favorite uh can't thank her enough as for us here at the Our Strange Skies podcast, you can find us on most podcasting apps. If you want to follow us on social media, buy some merch, or find the link to our Patreon page, head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com, your one-stop shop for this podcast. Uh, you can find all of that and a fantastic digital resource page. So, you know, if you want to get lost in these sources for a long time... You can go do that. Antiquated UFO journals are the joy of my life. I absolutely love them. Uh, I do have a P.O. Box. If you, for some reason, want to send me stuff, it's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. And if you haven't already, please go check out Welcome UFO People, the webcomic that I do with artist Todd Purse. Uh we have been uh, really killing it. Not going to lie. Love what we've been putting out. Um, I'm I, like, really, it is a, a total joy to do this project. Uh, we've talked about it on Astonishing Legends. You've probably heard it in our own podcast feed. Um, uh, and we've covered some cases that were featured on, you know, this podcast. So uh, 
go check it out at welcome ufo peeps on twitter and at welcome ufo people on instagram we also have high res images available on each of our patreon pages we are working on physical media of some kind todd is working on it uh the plan has always been to collect enough of these to put out uh a physical book of some kind at some point uh maybe a zine maybe like a a bigger book um that that will be coming down the line eventually uh we are uh you know stuck putting these out once a month just because of the amount of work that goes into them uh like on the the latest one that we did on the bernice niblet encounter todd banged that out in like two days normally it takes some you know good solid week to do to do this uh he really you know hammered it it got it done so um yeah it's gonna take us a while but we're gonna put out some physical stuff too at some point our strange skies is a proud member of do Mead media special thanks to floats for the use of their song ufo for our theme song go check out mark's stuff uh the links are in the show notes is great go check it out love his music um spencer worth davis is the man behind the curtain for this podcast our logo was designed by megan lagerberg and many of the t-shirt designs in our store are by the great desdemona and finally don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or on the road to joliet illinois in gray we trust Yeah.